Well, we're well into the book of Luke right now, and I want us to look at the whole chapter today of Luke chapter 9. So instead of asking someone to come and read it at the beginning, I'm going to break it down into sections for us today, and I'm going to open it up and read it as we go along looking at this message together today. And I want us this morning to delve a little bit deeper into how Jesus calls us to reach the world, how Jesus calls us to do evangelism, how Jesus calls us to go on mission. And I want us to look at some of the common mistakes together today, which the disciples made when they were reaching out to a world who so desperately needed to hear the word of Jesus. You see, up until this point in the gospel, the disciples had pretty much been with Jesus every step of the way, They'd pretty much been with Jesus all of the time. They'd seen him at work. They'd heard the things that he was teaching. They'd seen the miracles that he was producing. They'd seen him raise people from the dead. And they'd been with him constantly. But here at the start of Luke chapter 9, Jesus sends them out into the world. His intention is to spread the good news of his arrival and the hope that it brings to the entire nation of Israel. And he chooses his disciples for this really important task. And you know, the thing which blows me away as we look at Luke chapter 9 together today, the thing which I think is absolutely amazing is that he sends the disciples out with exactly the same authority that he has. This isn't a case of him saying to the disciples, listen guys, you go out, you find a problem, then give me a call. And when you do give me a call, I'll come running and I'll sort it out. No. He basically commissions them to be his hands and his feet to a world who so desperately needs him. And I find this passage, Luke chapter 9, fascinating because I believe that what we see in Luke chapter 9 today when Jesus sends out the disciples is something which in some ways appears to be very different from the church's idea of evangelism in this day and age. And I'm not specifically talking about Hope Baptist Church here. I'm talking about the modern church in general. And you know, I believe that one of the effects of this COVID season, which will be had upon the church, is that after this season, we are going to almost go back to what is much more of a biblical understanding of evangelism and outreach and mission. You see, a lot of evangelism in recent years has almost taken the form of guerrilla strikes, hasn't it? Where we kind of go out into the world for a short moment and we put on an event or we do something and we spread, we preach the gospel, but then we retreat really, really quickly back into the safety and the comfort of our buildings. But notice that's not the way that Jesus calls his people to do evangelism, to do outreach and to do mission. Let's begin together today by looking at Luke chapter 9 and verses 1 to 6. We read these words. When Jesus had called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. He told them, take nothing for the journey. No staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt. Whatever house you enter... Stay there until you leave that town. If people do not welcome you, leave their town and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So that so they set out and went from village to village, 
proclaiming the good news and healing people everywhere. When Jesus sends out his disciples, they're not just putting on an outreach event. They were to trust in God's care and directly engage with those that they were ministering to. That's why Jesus tells them not to go anywhere where they have all their provisions known about, but they're to stay in the homes of people that they meet. You see, effective evangelism requires engagement and it requires community. As disciples of Jesus, as his church, we are called, I believe, to engage with this world just as Jesus' disciples did. Effective evangelism requires more than just putting on an event. It requires more than just a preach. It requires serving and it requires relationship. The Bible refers to this as incarnation. It's what Jesus did. The word became flesh and dwelt among them. And you know... When we begin to understand this as disciples of Jesus Christ in this day and age, I believe this is extremely freeing for all of us. Because I think when we think about evangelism, when we think about mission and outreach, sometimes we get caught up in thinking, well, that's not my gifting. That's not how God has blessed me. So God's not going to use me in that way. We often feel guilty when we hear messages about outreach and evangelism and mission, because maybe we haven't led anyone to Christ. So we think, well, God's not going to use me in that way. But the truth is, God does give certain people giftings in evangelism. That's absolutely true. We see that in scripture. But we're all called to give a reason for the hope which we have within us. He calls us all to show a dying and hurting world that there is a better way to live and there is a reason that we have hope within us. And the way we do that is by being present and being Jesus to the community and telling them about that hope. By living among them, by serving as Jesus would and by proclaiming the good news with our mouth. And you know, what I love about our passage today is that the Gospels once again highlight the frailties of the disciples, don't they? We've looked in recent weeks how God calls very ordinary people to his task and to his mission. And in a lot of cases, I think you can argue that he calls less than ordinary people to do his will. And once again, here in Luke chapter 9, what we see is Jesus sent out a bunch of people who were not perfect. They didn't have their theology degrees. They didn't know everything. They didn't have all of their ducks in a row in terms of what was going on in their life. And yet, Jesus still chooses them to go out and to do the work that he calls them to do. But Even here in Luke chapter 9, after this group of people had spent a number of months with Jesus and seen everything that he was doing and everything that he was teaching, what we notice is that they are still prone to mistakes. And I don't know about you, but that encourages me a lot. I hope it does for you too. Because what it does is it enables us once again to see that salvation doesn't rest upon our shoulders. We're the vessels. God uses us, but actually we are not the ones who do the saving. It's only through the power of God that people's eyes are opened to see who he really is. And that despite our flaws, despite our frailties, despite our insecurities, despite the mess in our life, God can still accomplish the work that he desires to do through us. And I don't know about you, but I tend to find in my life that when things are going well, or when I do something which goes well, I tend to learn a few things. But actually, 
It's often through the mistakes, it's often through the mess-ups, it's often through the things which absolutely fall flat on their face that I tend to learn the most. And what I want us to do this morning, as we look at Luke chapter 9 together, is pick up on six mistakes which the disciples make in order to help us in this day and age to begin to effectively engage with our community, to effectively reach out with the love of Jesus as we are called to do. So we're going to, as I said, briefly look at the whole chapter and look at these and tease out some of these things from the disciples' journey here today. The first place that I want you to start today is in Luke 9, 11 to 17. And the classic mistakes start here. The first mistake we're going to see that the disciples make today is that they suffered from a lack of vision. Luke 9, 11 to 17 says this, But the crowd learned about it and they followed him. He welcomed them and he spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. Late in the afternoon, the twelve came to him and said, send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and the countryside and find food and lodging because we are in a remote place here. He replied, you give them something to eat. They answered, We only have five loaves of bread and two fish, unless we go and buy food for this crowd. There are about 5,000 men there. But he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. The disciples did so, and everyone sat down, taking the five loaves and the two fish, looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and he broke it. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces that were left over. So here's the situation. The disciples, after being sent out, have come back to Jesus, and they've told him everything that they've been up to. It's the end of a long day, and they wanted to withdraw somewhere for some rest. But crowds heard about it and they began to follow Jesus. And when Jesus sees these crowds, he has compassion and he starts to teach them. And the disciples at this point, they begin to get a little bit tetchy. They look at the crowd and they think to themselves, if these guys get hungry, it's going to kick off. We can't be doing it with that kind of malarkey today. So we need to go to Jesus and we need to say to Jesus, come on, send them home. And Jesus turns around to his disciples And he said, you feed them. The disciples, they're flabbergasted. We can't do that. That'll cost us a year's wages. That's not in the budget. You see, on top of the 5,000 men that were there that day, there were probably at least the same amount of women and children in the crowds. And this miracle is recorded in all four Gospels. And if we were to look at this miracle in the book of John, we would see that Jesus already knew what he was going to do, but he only said this to test them. You could say, that's a little bit unfair, Jesus. If you knew what you were going to do, why would you put your disciples through this? After all, you're Jesus. Of course you knew what you were going to do. But even after spending time with Jesus they still didn't fully realize who he is and what he could do. A lack of vision, a lack of vision can kill 
what God wants to do within the church. Proverbs tells us that where there is no vision, people perish. That's why there are so many dying churches around up and down the country. You know, some of the greatest faith-killing statements which are made by people within the church are things like this. Well, we've never done that before. Well, that's not how we do things here. But this is the way we do things. We always do it this way, and we can't do it differently. Ah, no, we tried that in the past, and it didn't work. It's easy, isn't it, for us to look at a problem which we are facing and allow the problem to begin to squash our faith, whether that be finance, whether that be resources, whether that be people, or whether that be circumstances. But you know, church, our God is a great big God. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He promises to supply all of our needs according to his riches in glory. And sometimes that means that the church needs to step up and to step out and say, God, I don't know how you're going to do this. I don't know what's going to happen. I know, all I do know is if you're not in this, I'm going to fall flat on my face and it is going to fail. But today, Jesus Christ, I am choosing to trust in you. I wonder where, in this season where everything feels so upside down, at a time where we maybe can't really see what is coming up all that easily, where is God calling us to be a people, individually and as a church, where we need to stop worrying about what is going to happen, what might happen and what might fail, and where we need to say, God, we're placing our trust in your hands and we're stepping up and we're stepping out. Number two, mistake number two. Is found in the verses 28 to 36. And I want to say today that the disciples, they also suffer from a lack of perspective. We read these words beginning at verse 28. After eight days, about eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him, and they went up onto a mountainside to pray. And he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men Moses and Elijah appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment in Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. Whilst he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the clouds. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, They found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. So Jesus takes three of his closest disciples, Peter, James, and John, up onto a mountainside. They get to the top, and because they're weary, Peter, James, and John fall asleep. And when they awake, they witness 
possibly one of the greatest scenes in the entire Bible. They see Jesus in his glory talking with Moses and Elijah. It's a scene which shows fulfillment of some of the promises which were given in the Old Testament. And for a moment, just for a brief moment, Jesus' humanity is stripped back and they catch a glimpse of who he really is. And in his excitement, Peter asks if it is a good idea for him to build three shelters. And by asking this, what he effectively does is he puts Moses and Elijah on the same level as Jesus. Effectively, what he wants to do is build a monument to this magical moment. But ultimately, he misses the points. And he hears the voice of God then say, This is my son. Listen to him. A wrong perspective on the Christian life seeks experiences over relationship. Experiences come and go. And you know, when we're thinking about outreach, when we're thinking about evangelism, when we're thinking about how God calls us to reach the world, a lot of our activities rely on experiences, don't they? If we put on a good event, If everything is polished and professional, if what we do looks really good, then people might be interested to know more about Jesus. If our outreach and our relationship is based solely upon experiences, let me tell you, church, it won't stand the test of time. Don't believe me? Then ask yourself this today. Why is it that as a church, and not just Hope, but probably every church, why is it that we put so much effort into our Christmas program each and every year? We want to put the best carol service on. We want to put the best outreach events on. And what we see when it comes to the fruit of salvation from such events is usually incredibly small. Why is that the case? I'm not knocking programs. Honestly, I'm not. They have their place and they have their effectiveness. But if the sum total of our outreach is just this kind of event-based culture, rather than genuinely wanting to draw alongside people and showing them who Jesus is, it's no wonder that the church is in decline in this country. If our faith is based purely upon spiritual experiences, whether that's attending a building on a Sunday or whether that's going to a Christian festival once a year, it leaves us incredibly spiritually shallow. Spiritual experiences are given to us to encourage us in the battle. But the only real way of preserving a spiritual experience is to use it. Someone once put it like this, that as a Christian, we're called to meet God in the private place and then we're called to serve him in the marketplace. If all we do is go from one spiritual high after another, our faith never gets rooted and we never become mature. I wonder how your perspective on things is today. Are you tired? Are you angry? Are you hurting at the moment? Are you annoyed because you perceive the church has not met your needs in this season? Or... In a season of lack, have you allowed God to mature your faith and grow deep roots within you? The disciples had a lack of perspective. They saw this amazing scene and they wanted to kind of immortalize it forever and come back to this spiritual experience, but ultimately they missed the point. Number three, found in verses 37 to 43. The next mistake we're going to look at today is that the disciples, they suffered from a lack of power. We read these words beginning at verse 37. The next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met them. A man in the crowd called out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son. 
for he is only, he's my only child. A spirit seizes him and he suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him and it's destroying him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. You unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. Even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the impure spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. While Jesus was up on the mountainside with Peter, James, and John, the other disciples were down in the valley in the town, and they were failing. They were failing at the ministry that they needed to do. A boy had been brought to them. He had been possessed by an evil spirit. He was convulsing and foaming at the mouth. And his heartbroken father takes him to Jesus' disciples. And they attempt to cast this demon out, but they can't. And the fact that they couldn't do it proves that once again, they weren't the finished product. They did not have it all together. They still had so much to learn. Matthew's account of this particular incident sheds a little bit more light on why they failed. In Matthew 17, the disciples, they ask, why couldn't we do it? Why couldn't we heal the boy? And Jesus tells them that this particular demon only comes out through prayer and fasting. Do you see where the disciples got it wrong here? They looked at the situation and they thought, I know exactly what to do about this. I know exactly how to fix it. I know exactly how to solve it. But actually, first and foremost, what they should have done was pray. They should have come to God and sought God for the answer. And, you know, so often we do exactly the same, don't we? I know the best ways to reach people. I've been in church all my life. I know exactly how to do evangelism and exactly how to do mission and exactly how to outreach. I know what to do. And we go about it in our own strength and we wonder why we fail. You know, church, if we want to see God move in our generation, if we want to see the power of God move in Plymouth and Plymouth changed and transformed, if we want to see people come to know the hope of Jesus for themselves, we need to realize we don't have the power. Only God does. Effective mission, effective outreach, effective evangelism starts with the church on its knees. You know, I've been a Christian since I was 14 or 15, and every church setting that I've been part of, there's always been a prayer which has been prayed, Lord, send revival. We want to see revival in our generation. We want to see you move, Lord. You know, I'm yet to see it, and I wonder, I wonder what would happen if as a church we begun to take that press more seriously and we began to seek the Lord in prayer together more earnestly. We wonder why our, our efforts fail so often, because we're doing things which are not in the power of God. We're doing things in our own strength. What would it look like if this church, every week committed to turning up to the prayer meeting and praying together and seeking God's face? What would it look like if it wasn't just the usual kind of small numbers that gather for prayer? What would it look like if as a church we said... We're going to commit to praying together with one another. We're going to make this our priority and we are going to earnestly seek the Lord together. You know, I believe that things would change and transform very rapidly if we were to take on that kind of approach. Number four, we see from verses 46 to 48 that they suffered from a lack of unity. This is what we read. 
An argument started among the disciples as to which of them was the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him sit beside him. Then he said to him, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For it is the one who is least among you that will be the greatest. So, an argument arises among the disciples. Who is the greatest disciple? They want it to be number one in the disciple hall of fame. We don't know what started this argument. Perhaps it was envy. Jesus had only taken three disciples up to the mountain with him, and the other nine, they'd been down in the town, and they'd been failing at what they were supposed to be doing. Whatever the reason, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, knowing their hearts, uses this analogy of a child to portray greatness in the kingdom of heaven. A child was cherished, but ultimately powerless in Hebrew culture. And Jesus was saying that if you really want to be great, You have to become like this little child. By doing so, what he does is he eradicates disunity and he eradicates pride. You see, ultimately, pride is at the core of all sin. In the Garden of Eden, what was Adam tempted with? If you eat of the fruit of this tree, you'll become like God. You'll become great. You'll become your own man. You won't need anyone else. He wanted to puff himself up. He wanted to elevate his status to be God of his own life. But the example that Jesus sets is that though being in the very nature God, he didn't count equality with God as something to be grasped, but he humbled himself, making himself of no reputation and taking on the form of a servant. You know, we all have the tendency to be prideful, don't we? We all have the tendency to puff ourselves up and look at ourselves more highly than we ought. And, you know, to puff ourselves up is dangerous, And we cannot live like that because sooner or later, what happens is the cracks begin to get exposed. Don't believe me, you've only got to look at some of the mega pastors which have fallen in recent months and recent years who had this kind of idolized culture around them that they couldn't be touched. They were on these pedestals and what they said was always gospel truth and then bam, the cracks are exposed in their life, their private life or whatever it was. And they come tumbling down. Pride puffs up. It causes disunity. And Jesus makes it very clear that anyone who wants to be great in the kingdom of heaven must be a servant of all. And we need to realize that it's when unity flourishes within the church that outreach begins to flow. Because, you know, there is something so attractive about a church which is united. You know, we can still disagree and be united on certain things. We can still have differences of opinion and still be united in love in Christ on the main things. And when we do, people see that and it draws them closer to Jesus. I wonder what attitudes that God is calling you to shed in this season. Number five, they suffer from a lack of tolerance. Verses 49 to 50 says this, Master, said John. We saw someone driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop them because he was not one of us. Don't stop them, said Jesus, for whoever is not against you is for you. So here's the scene now. A few short verses ago, the disciples, they'd been attempting to cast out a demon and they failed. And then they're walking up the street And they see this guy who's not even part of their group successfully casting out a demon. And they're like, 
what is going on here? They displayed this real lack of love towards this man who was outside their group. And Jesus tells the disciples, guys, what are you doing? This man is on our side. You know, one of the real killers to outreach, to evangelism and to mission in our day and age is that we go about, churches go about, empire building rather than kingdom building. You know, no church has a monopoly on outreach. And outreach has been hindered so badly in the past by churches looking at other churches and comparing and seeing the great work which is going on in other congregations and getting jealous about it. So they start to moan about them and backbite about them. You know, I've heard it in this city about certain churches in my short time here. It kills outreach. My heart for us as a church is that we get alongside other churches in this city and do gospel outreach together regardless of where people end up serving and worshipping as a church. Praise God for the churches across this city. Praise God for where God is growing his church right now and people are coming to know Jesus. Praise God for those churches who are meeting the needs of people right across Plymouth and sharing the gospel. I want us to be looking as a church at how we can do that together and better because we are stronger united than we are divided. Let's as a church commit to not comparing ourselves. Let's as a church commit to not downplaying our brothers and sisters in Christ who are doing God's mission across this city, but let's look at how we can do it together. Number six, they suffered from a lack of compassion. Verses 51 to 56 says this, at that time, At the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set his face towards Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead of them who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and he rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went on to another village. Jesus had set his face towards Jerusalem for the very reason that he had come to earth in the first place. But when he does, he purposely sets his direction through a Samaritan town. Jews would often purposefully avoid a Samaritan town. They would walk for miles to not have to go through one. But Jesus sends messengers on ahead of him to see if there's someone in this town who will put them up for the night. But the Samaritans, they did not want Jesus and his disciples there. So the disciples come up with a solution. Let's burn them. Let's get them off the scene. Let's get rid of them. They were ultimately motivated by prejudice. The reality, the reason they wanted to burn them was the same reason the Samaritans didn't want them there in the first place. It was racism. We need to realize that if we're going to be effective in what God calls us to do and to outreach into a community, a dying and hurting world who so desperately needs Jesus, we cannot pick and choose who we share the good news of Jesus Christ with. God calls us to love the unlovely. He calls us to love people who are not like us. Maybe even people that we struggle with. And let me tell you, church, if as a church we preach the gospel right, 
There are going to be people who join our family here who are going to mess up our nice, neat community of believers. There are going to be people who join us who are not like us, who have a different worldview, who have all kinds of mess in their lives, and Jesus calls us to embrace them as part of the family. Our hearts should be moved to compassion for a dying and hurting world, regardless of who they are. Effective evangelism requires vision. Effective evangelism requires the right perspective. Effective evangelism requires the power of God. It requires unity. It requires realizing that as a church, we're not his only agents, and it requires compassion. His disciples after spending all the time they did with Jesus, still got it wrong. But Jesus still used them. And despite not being perfect, despite the fact that at times they failed, despite the fact that we're not perfect, despite the fact that at times we will fail, God still can and wants to and will use us. The question is, are we prepared to answer his call today, church? I wonder where you have suffered from a lack of vision and God is saying to you today, look again, look again. I wonder where you have maybe been so blinkered in your perspective and you haven't been willing to budge. And God is saying to you today, look again, look once more, see I'm doing a new thing. I wonder if the power of God has been lacking in your life because you haven't first sought the kingdom of heaven. I wonder if you've been intolerant towards others. I wonder if there's been disagreements which have led to disunity in your life and God is calling you today to do something about it. I wonder where God is calling you to be compassionate today. Church, I believe that this group of people that calls itself Hope Baptist Church, is on the verge of a season of fruitfulness as a church where we are going to preach the gospel, we are going to reach out to our community in an effective and biblical manner, and we're going to see people come to know Jesus. That this baptistry, which is in front of me right now, is going to be open, and we are going to be baptizing people on a regular basis here in Jesus' name because people are bowing the knee to King Jesus. And as a result, they're professing their faith in Jesus Christ through the waters of baptism. I wish there were some people here to say amen to this this morning. Church, do you believe it? Are you willing to be used? Are you willing to step out? Let me tell you something today once again. You don't have to have all your ducks in a row. You don't have to have all your life sorted. You just need to be open to Jesus Christ saying, go into all the world and preach the gospel. You'll fail, you'll fall, but Jesus is there. And what he does with your effort is up to him. Let's pray. I'm going to invite the band to come back up. Father God, we thank you for the example we see in Scripture of an imperfect group of people, a ragtag collective of misfits who you called together, who didn't have their life all in order, but you sent. 
We thank you that salvation doesn't rest upon our shoulders. We are merely your vessels, your agents. We thank you that salvation belongs to our God. He is the one who opens the eyes of unbelievers. He is the one who does the work of salvation. And Lord God, today, we commit ourselves to saying yes and amen to your plans. Even when we don't understand it, even when we don't have the right perspective, Lord, we commit ourselves once again to seeking your power, to seeking first the kingdom of heaven. Lord, we commit ourselves once again to being a church which is united in Christ. We commit ourselves once again to having compassion. Help us, Lord God, because we can't do it without you. And Lord, as we read about Jesus resolutely fixing his face upon Jerusalem, today we resolutely fix our face upon you. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, church. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's worship God in song. Let's be open to what God might be saying to us. And I want to encourage you once again, to write in the chat if you believe God's putting scripture on your heart God's putting a picture on your heart let's build up the church let's encourage one another that we might be sent out to do his work let's worship church